official podcast of Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church at the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at wellchurchvt.com. This fall, we are in a sermon series we're calling The Kingdom of God. Jesus had a lot to say about the kingdom of God. In fact, he spoke more about the kingdom of God than any other topic. And when he talked about the kingdom of God, he used parables. So today, we are going to be looking at the parable of the ten bridesmaids. This is found in Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. And as we're reading this parable, I want to ask you two questions to be thinking about. First, what does this parable say about the nature of the kingdom of God? In other words, what is the kingdom of God like? And secondly, based on what the parable suggests about what the kingdom of God is like, how shall we then live our lives? Let's read the parable. Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, they were roused by the shout, Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out and meet him. All the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, Please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, We don't have enough for all of us. Go to a shop and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was locked. Later, when the other five bridesmaids returned, They stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, Believe me, I don't know you. So you too must keep watch, for you do not know the day or hour of my return. So what do we have here in this parable? We have a wedding. God loves weddings. Does anyone remember the first miracle Jesus performed? Well, he turned water into wine at a wedding in Cana. In order to understand what this parable is saying about the kingdom of God, we have to know something about weddings in ancient Israel because they were a little different from the weddings we hold today. In ancient Israel, getting married was a two-stage event. First, there was a betrothal, and then usually about a year later, the actual wedding. Now, the betrothal was not the same as a modern-day engagement, It was a little bit more serious. When two people get engaged today, they are free to break off the engagement if they choose. But when a man and woman entered into a betrothal in ancient Israel, this was a binding agreement under Jewish law. Breaking off a betrothal required a divorce. So when two people were betrothed in ancient Israel, they were as good as married, only they had not yet merged their lives. They still lived separately, the bride with her parents and the groom with his parents. And there was a period of waiting. 
And that period of waiting was necessary because it took time for them to prepare the household. The woman would need time to acquire the items that she would be bringing into the household. This was her dowry. And the groom needed time to prepare a suitable home to share with his bride. Only after these logistics were in place was there finally a wedding. Well, this picture of getting married in ancient Israel, of getting married in two stages, is, I think, a really poignant picture of the kingdom of God. Two weeks ago, Adam described the kingdom of God as already, but not yet. Do you see how the betrothal is a picture of the already and not yet? The deal is done, but the reality has yet to be fully experienced. I have a confession to make. I have a problem when it comes to thinking about the kingdom of God is already, but not yet. And here's the problem. I tend to put most of my eggs in the not yet basket. Because when I turn on the news, I don't hear many stories about mercy or forgiveness or generosity or goodness. I don't hear a lot of stories about the humble being exalted or the exploited and the marginalized being given a seat at the table. It seems to me like those who abuse power often become more powerful, while those who suffer injustice remain disenfranchised. The kingdom seems very far away. It seems mostly not yet. But this parable of the ten bridesmaids shows me that the already part of the kingdom equation is actually a much bigger part of the equation than I thought. The betrothal has been made. The covenant of the kingdom has been established And it has even been sealed with blood, the blood that Jesus shed for us on the cross, which means that now it is only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time before the fullness of the kingdom is realized, when forgiveness will flourish and justice and mercy will kiss, and there will no longer be any racism or sexism or violence or hate. And like the bride who, as a betrothed bride, is living into the reality of her marriage to come by gathering her dowry, we're freed to live into the reality of the kingdom, which is here and now and yet to come. So that's the backstory to this parable. The the backstory of this parable is that there has been a betrothal, and now the wedding day has arrived. So what did a wedding day look like in ancient Israel? Well, in ancient Israel, the groom would leave the house of his parents on his wedding day and go to the bride's house. And there he would finalize the terms of the marriage with the bride's father. There was a contract. And then the groom would take his bride to his home to a grand celebration lasting days or even a week or even sometimes more than a week. There would be music and dancing and feasting. Well, there would be a procession from the bride's house to the groom's house to that celebration. She would be carried in in a bridal litter or in a perion, and they would be escorted by a procession of family and friends who would join them along the way. And that's where the bridesmaids come into the parable. They are part of that procession. They are waiting for the groom to appear from the bride's house with his bride. But in this parable, something goes wrong. The bridegroom has been delayed. Why has the bridegroom been delayed? Well, we don't know, but perhaps negotiations over the marriage contract were taking longer than usual. Maybe there was a dispute to be settled over the contract's terms. So the bridesmaids in this parable must wait. But not all of them are prepared to wait. 
They haven't all brought extra oil for their lamps, and this becomes a problem because half of them end up running out of oil. They end up missing the procession, and they end up losing their entry to the feast. So what does this tell us about the nature of the kingdom of God? First and foremost, I think what this parable tells us is that the kingdom of God is a love story. It's a love story at the center of which is a wedding unlike any wedding we have ever seen. A wedding that each one of us is invited to. Jesus, the bridegroom, is preparing a place for his bride, and one day he will come to take her to be with him. Secondly, the kingdom of God is unfolding on God's timeline, not ours. The kingdom of God is unfolding on God's timeline, not ours. And this is where we see the challenge in the parable. And I think it's also where we see the invitation. So let's talk about the bridesmaids. What is the difference between the bridesmaids? They all have lamps. They all have oil. They're all prepared to greet the bridegroom. Here's the difference. They're each prepared for the bridegroom, but only half of them are prepared for the bridegroom's delay. The wise have enough oil for the wedding to start whenever the groom arrives, but the foolish have only enough for the groom to arrive on their own timetable. We need to pay attention to this. We need to pay attention to this because it reminds us that the kingdom of God doesn't conform to our schedule. It doesn't conform to our schedule. There are going to be surprises. There are going to be disappointments. There are going to be delays. And during those delays, there may be boredom. There may be doubt. There may be disillusionment. Things are not always going to go as we wish or as we expect or even as we think they're supposed to go. Will we be able to weather these things? Will we have enough oil in our lamps to carry us through to when the, the bridegroom arrives? I'd like to share a concern that I have about the church with you. It's not a concern about our church in particular. I'm talking about the larger church in general, but of course our church is part of that larger church. My biggest concern for the church is that it would be marked by what I would call an unsustainable faith. I worry about people who believe in Jesus, but don't spend time getting to know him. They may come to church, but they don't necessarily know what it means to meet with Jesus outside of a Sunday morning. They believe in prayer, but they don't necessarily take the time to pray. These are people whose faith is often, I find, dependent on someone else. Perhaps the faith of a spouse, or the faith of a parent, or the faith of a friend, or even the faith of a pastor. Now, it isn't a bad thing to be encouraged by others in our faith, to be discipled, to be mentored, to be edified. God created us for community, and community helps us to grow in our faith. In fact, as a pastor, that's essentially my job, and it's the job of Adam and Ian. It's to encourage you in your faith and to help you to grow in your walk with Christ. But another person's relationship with God can never be a substitute for our own. Let me say that again. Another person's relationship with God can never be a substitute for our own. There's another kind of unsustainable faith that I worry about in the church at large. 
is what I might call um, circumstantial faith. Circumstantial faith is when we say, sure, I believe, but only if my career is successful, or only if I find a spouse, or I believe, but only if the people I love remain in good health and my health remains intact. Sadly, this kind of faith doesn't value getting to know Jesus for who he is, but rather for what he can give. And when a person with this kind of faith hits bumps in the road on the journey of life, their faith tragically will not be able to sustain them. To me, what this parable of the ten bridesmaids is really about is about having a sustainable faith. And what is the symbol for sustainability here? The symbol for sustainability here in this parable, it's oil. Now, what does the oil represent specifically? Jesus doesn't say. He leaves this open for our interpretation. Scholars have their ideas, but they don't all agree. Some say that the oil represents good works. Some say it represents devotion to the Word of God. Personally, I think that the oil can stand for many different things, including those things. But ultimately, I think it stands for whatever keeps the flame of our faith alive and shining brightly when Jesus doesn't show up in the particular ways and on the precise time frame that we are expecting to. Let me ask you a question. How would you describe the flame of your faith at this moment or this season in your life? Is it a strong, bright flame that's burning robustly? Is it a fragile flame that needs some protection from the breeze? Is it an ember that's just barely holding on? Or is it a smoking wick that has gone out, perhaps needs to be reignited? I want to invite you to hold on to that question uh, because we're going to come back to it. So far, we've asked the question, what does this parable teach us about the nature of the kingdom of God? And now I'd like for us to ask another question, the second question I posed, which is based on what this parable reveals about the kingdom of God. How shall we then live? And what I'd like to do with the rest of our time is simply to share four practices that I think can help us to have a more sustainable faith. Now, there are many practices that can help create a sustainable faith. These are just four that I have personally found helpful in making my own faith more sustainable. And the first one is praying scripture. Praying scripture. This is something that I've only really been discovering in the last two years or so, and I found it to be deeply soul-nourishing. Now, you would think it's obvious, right? There are all of these psalms in the Bible. How many psalms in the Bible? 150. Plus, prayers scattered throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. So it would make sense that sometimes we would pray them, right? But my faith was formed in a church context where you always made up your own prayers. It was as if this was the only genuine way to pray. And there is something to that. But here's the thing. Sometimes I get to the end of my own words. Sometimes I come to prayer and I simply don't have any words to begin with. I just feel empty. I simply don't have anything left to give to God. Do you ever feel that way? Praying Psalm 16 or Psalm 23 or Psalm 139 
or praying the Lord's Prayer slowly, maybe several times, and definitely aloud so that my heart can hear the words, not just read them. This fills me. I really can't think of a better word to describe what happens when I do this, but to say it simply fills me. Can I share a scriptural prayer that has been sustaining for me? It's Psalm 18.1. I love you, Lord. You are my strength. I love you, Lord. You are my strength. I love you, Lord. You are my strength. I stumbled on this verse while I was experiencing some discouragement. I don't even remember now what the discouragement was about. But it was a discouragement that lasted a week or so. Um, and when I came across this verse, 18, uh, Psalm 18.1, I have to say that it didn't do a lot for me when I read it on the page. But something inside me told me that I needed more. I needed to get more out of it. That there was something that that verse had for me. That I wasn't accessing simply by reading it. And so I decided to speak it, to speak it aloud. And when I spoke it, it really came alive. And over the course of about a week, it became a lifeline for me. I spoke these words aloud every time I got in my car to drive to a meeting, every time I got up in the morning, every time I went to bed at night. Sometimes when I went to bed at night, it was the only prayer that I prayed. I could have prayed perhaps so many other things, but I felt it was all I could pray and all I needed to pray. And... These words sustain me. They were oil for my lamp. A second practice that I want to talk with you about, share with you, is the practice of silence. I'd love to give a whole sermon on this one day, but this is my mini sermon on the practice of silence. It's another place where I found oil for my lamp. Now, it might be counterintuitive because silence is an absence, right? It's an absence of sound. It's actually not a complete absence of sound. If you are silent, you'll start hearing all the sounds around you. But it's a fasting from speaking, right? From creating a sound. So how does this absence, this this time spent in silence, result in being filled? Well, I think there's an emptying that takes place when we fast from talking. I find that that emptying that's happening in me when I fast from talking makes room for God inside me. And it's room that I usually don't realize I need to make for God until I do, and He begins to fill it. Now, when we talk, we are pouring out, pouring out, pouring out, pouring out. And this is a good thing. We should be sharing with each other many things. And we should pour out our prayers and our petitions to God as Scripture clearly invites us to. But I have... but. I, I've learned that I need to stop pouring out sometimes and simply be an open vessel that God can fill. Here's the thing about silence. I don't always feel like I'm being filled when I spend time in silence before God. But when I step back into my busy life, I'm usually a little bit more reverent a little bit more patient, a little bit more thoughtful about my actions, a little bit more in control of my tongue, and I need to be more in control of my tongue. When I have spent time in silence, I find that there is more oil in my lamp. So what does a practice of silence look like? What could it look like? It could look like many different things. It could look like simply taking 60 seconds to breathe deeply before you go to pray. When I do that, I find that I pray differently. 
It can look like finding a quiet window during your lunch hour, maybe setting your phone alarm for four minutes or five minutes, and taking time just to be still and look out that window and remember that God is with you. It could look like setting aside 20 minutes or 30 minutes on a Sunday or a day that you have off and and simply taking a silent walk with God, taking a walk with Him and not speaking to Him per se, but cultivating an awareness that He's with you. It could look like even going on a silent retreat for a day or a weekend or even a, a whole week. There are many ways to practice silence. It shouldn't surprise me, but it always does. How God meets me when I take time to be quiet with Him. Thirdly, I want to share with you something that I've been learning about a third practice, the practice of serving. God has a promise for everyone who serves. It's the promise that he will bless them. Jesus said that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, it's a paradox, but giving actually fills us. Have you ever grumbled inside about helping someone and then when it was done, you actually felt refreshed? Serving changes our perspective. It keeps us close to Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve. But here's what I've been learning about service lately. When we serve, we actually witness the kingdom of God unfolding before us. We get to be a part of the kingdom of God unfolding before us. We get a front row seat. So when you're feeling discouraged because it seems like the kingdoms of this world are going to have the last word serve. Perhaps offer a ride to someone who doesn't have a car. Maybe visit someone who's lonely. You could help serve dinner to the homeless at New Moon at the banquet that they have once a month. You could tutor a refugee in English through the Vermont Refugee Resettlement Program. They're actually looking for tutors right now, English tutors. You could donate time to an environmental organization that's helping protect and care for God's creation. And I think that when we do these things, you will see the kingdom of God unfolding in your midst. And that will be oil for your lamp. So, so far we've talked about the practice of praying scripture, the practice of silence, the practice of serving others. I want to talk about a fourth and final practice this morning, and I've left this one for last because it's perhaps a little bit more of an unconventional practice. It's the odd one out on this list. It's the practice of beauty. Paul said in Philippians 4.8, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this verse in the message. He says, you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious, the best, not the worst, the beautiful, not the ugly, things to praise, not things to curse. Well, this verse here is really the anchor for this practice, the practice of beauty. Have you noticed that God loves beauty? He created the world a staggeringly beautiful place, filled with endless wonders beyond our comprehension. God is the author of beauty, and his kingdom is a truly and ravishingly beautiful kingdom. However, we live in a toxic society. There's no lack of ugliness around us. 
And one of the most insidious forms of ugliness is what I would call cheap beauty. All those things that the world tries to sell us as beautiful, but which are just flimsy, fleeting shadows of beauty designed to make a dime. Have you ever heard it said, we become what we behold? Well, if this is true, and I do happen to believe that there is truth in that statement, if this is true, what will happen to us if we keep our gaze down and continuously take in the ugliness and the cheap beauty that our society loves to feed us? What will become of us? What will we have to give? Here's why I think it's so important for us to take time to behold beauty. Because beauty points to a deeper reality. Beauty points to the reality of the kingdom of God. And it reminds us that this world hinges not on ugliness and sin, but on goodness and truth. And every time we take in a breathtaking landscape or observe the intricacies of a leaf or a butterfly or experience the peaceful music of a flute or feel inspired by the selfless character Uh, of a a, a protagonist in a novel, we get a glimpse of that deeper reality. Beauty helps us reorient ourselves in the direction of the kingdom. Beauty helps us reorient ourselves in the direction of the kingdom. I I have a story that I want to share with you. It's a story that I've chosen to share with you because I, I think it's a really compelling picture of the kingdom of God and also because I think it's a really compelling picture of how beauty can serve as oil for our lamps. Ernest Gordon was a 24 year old commander from Scotland during World War II. He was captured as a prisoner of war and placed in a notorious Japanese prison camp in Burma. He and the other prisoners at this camp were forced to build a railway, a railway of many miles, and a railway that had two bridges. And this project should have taken several years, but the Japanese were trying to finish it in only a few short months. And as you can imagine, the prisoners suffered terrible conditions. They were fed almost nothing. They were commonly tortured for negligible oversights. And a very high number of the, of the prisoners tragically died from disease or abuse. The prisoners' morale was not good. They started off really in this place of hatred toward their captors, but eventually Gordon said their hatred dissolved into what he called a black, numb despair. Selfishness reigned. The prisoners cared for no one but themselves, and they did just whatever they needed to do to survive, even at each other's expense. Well, one day, something happened that made a deep impression on Gordon. A prisoner was caught stealing medicine. He was stealing it for a sick friend. And as punishment for stealing this medicine, he was executed. But right before the execution, the prisoner took out a pocket Bible, and he read a verse quietly to himself. Gordon could see the man's lips moving, but he couldn't hear the words. And when the prisoner lifted his head to face his executioner, there was a sense of peace, Gordon said, on his face even a smile. Gordon was very ill. Um, He spent a long time in the prison camp hospital, which was really hardly a hospital. It was mostly a place where people who were very ill were just left to die. He thought he was going to die. And as he was laying there in that hospital, he began wondering, what was the Bible verse that the man who had been executed read? 
Snippets of scripture that he had heard in his own youth came back to Gordon. And he was becoming a man of faith. Unexpectedly, he got well. And as he re-entered camp life, he noticed some changes among the prisoners. They were starting to look out for one another a little bit more, caring for one another, not just themselves. It turns out that the man who had stolen medicine for his friend and died with a Bible verse on his lips had been having an impact on them, too. One day, uh, a shipment came for the prisoners, a shipment from the YMCA, and it included seven violins. Now, Gordon and some of his friends decided to do something absolutely preposterous. They decided, with these seven uh, violins, to start a prison camp orchestra. And surprisingly, the Japanese approved. After all, it would be entertainment for them. But the prisoners needed some more instruments, so they started carving woodwinds from bamboo. They took oil containers and made drums. They even created a bass viola using a large tea box and some cow gut. One prisoner who had been a serious musician before the war and happened to have a photographic memory was actually able to write down musical scores from memory for the orchestra to play. The prisoners even got permission to build a stage so that they could give concerts for the rest of the prisoners. The orchestra raised the spirits of the men in the camp considerably, as you can imagine. Gordon said, we realized that beauty can be anywhere. I love that. Beauty can be anywhere. Even in a notorious prison camp, in the middle of the jungle, in the middle of a war. You see, when this prison camp orchestra played music, that music pointed toward a greater reality. The kingdom of God had broken out in a place where hatred and violence had reigned. And these prisoners were still surrounded by that hatred and violence and abuse. But the hatred no longer reigned in them. Gordon eventually gathered some of the prisoners and started a church in the camp. And guess what he preached on? He preached on forgiveness. In June 1945, the Allies finally liberated the camp, and the tables were turned. Suddenly, the Japanese were now the prisoners, and many of the Japanese had been wounded by the Allies' attack. They were defeated. Their future was very, very stark. What do you think Gordon and his friends did? Did they shame and abuse and take out their revenge on their former captors? No. Without speaking, they did something as beautiful as playing Beethoven in the midst of a prison camp. As Gordon recounts in his book, uh, they offered their their, their former captors their canteens. They shared their rations with them. And to the Allied soldiers' absolute astonishment, they even helped dress their wounds. What a picture of the kingdom. And what a picture of beauty at work. I asked a question earlier that I want to return to. And the question is, how would you describe the flame of your faith at this moment or this season in your life? Is it a strong and robust flame burning brightly? Is it a fragile flame that needs some protection from the breeze? Is it an ember that's just barely holding on? Or is it a smoking wick that has entirely gone out and needs to be reignited? Let me ask you another question. What would it look like for your lamp to be filled? 
Is there a practice that we talked about that would help fill your lamp so that it's burning strongly, that it keeps burning even until the bridegroom arrives? Not a practice that would be just something to add to your spiritual routine, like it's just one more thing to do, but a practice that could be for you an opening for grace in your life. What would it look like for you to incorporate that practice into your day today or perhaps into the week ahead or even perhaps into the rhythm of your everyday life? If you're here today and you aren't one of the bridesmaids in this parable waiting for the groom, you're simply a bystander, you heard some commotion, you came to check things out and you saw that there was a wedding procession happening, I want to let you know that you are invited to the wedding. God loves you and he wants to have a relationship with you. And you can step into that relationship simply simply by praying, yes, Lord, I want to know you. Show me who you are. Now that's a prayer that God loves and that he always, always answers. I'd like for us to close by praying the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, the kingdom prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community reintroducing Jesus in Vermont through worship, service, creativity, and community. 